Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I am joined by Eric Crittenden. Uh, He is the CIO at Standpoint, and he is here today to talk about about the behavioral aspects of all-weather investing. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. No, it's it's great to have you. You were referred to me quite emphatically by a friend of the show, Russ Wood. So Russ, thank you. We always love it when people say, hey, we've got someone you got to meet. And so Russ uh, insisted that I take a look at you and your work. And once I did, I knew immediately uh, why, uh, why he wanted me to have you on. So it's great to have you here. So we are going to start out. So Standpoint favors uh, an approach that I that I don't know will be super familiar to all of the listeners of show. Uh, you favor an all-weather approach to investing that combines what you call macro-trend investing and long equity beta. Russ tells me that you have a, a fantastic analogy, an SUV analogy, to, to talk about the benefits of all-weather investing. So what is all-weather investing and and what's sort of the behavioral piece behind it? Yeah, the idea behind an all-weather investment program is to try to be prepared for many, many different kinds of market environments. So the way I do research is I like to go back to 1970 to try to capture you know, all the realistically plausible market environments that we might get going forward. And an all-weather strategy is simply an attempt to combine different assets together in a way that's scalable and reasonably tax efficient that can also handle the kind of market environments that at least we've seen since 1970. That includes things like inflation, bull markets, crashes, bear markets, Goldilocks environments, you know, disinflation, deflation, all of them. And you know, you don't get something for nothing. So if you want to be prepared for just about anything, um, what you give up is is the ability to be a hero in specific type of market environments like uh, you know, large cap growth being on fire for five, six, seven years. You know, you're just you're not going to be in first place. Or, you know, back when MLPs or regional banks or interest rate sensitive markets soared after 2003, you know, you're not going to be in first place. Um, but that suits our personality a standpoint very well. You know, we view this as a marathon. We're trying to finish the marathon with good risk adjusted, you know, compounded returns that exceed inflation, you know, after fees and taxes and just do a good job for people. So all weather um, is something that fits our personality and our mandate. And a lot of people, when they look at all weather, they look at it and say, well, it's just kind of an absolute return, a globally diversified absolute return program. And and I don't, um, I don't disagree with that, but all weather, I think, is more descriptive. So Russ, you know, Russ is an old school friend of the folks here at Standpoint, and he likes that SUV analogy. So I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, like a large cap growth program that that has done really well over the past, you know, five years. I would think I would think, I would describe as being like a Corvette. You know, it's a uh, it's good for an open highway. Uh, it's good for high speeds and tight corners and whatnot. Um, if you were going to have a program that did well, say, um, I don't know, at 2008 to 2010, 
or something that did well during COVID, you kind of needed more of a four-wheel drive off-road type vehicle, you know, something that could go over huge mud puddles and over boulders and stuff like that. So maybe a, a Jeep or a Humvee or, or some sort of a specialized off-road vehicle. An all-weather program is is you're trying to get a little of both. You know, you want something that can handle difficult conditions, um, but also is is suitable enough for a night out on the town and has the horsepower and handling uh, to not embarrass itself on the on the freeway or in through tight turns on a mountain road or something like that. So an SUV, I think, is a good example of combining uh, certain features of a sports car, certain features of a luxury sedan, and certain features of a of an off road vehicle. But again, it's not going to be in first place. It can't go head to head with an off road vehicle when you're off road uh, and and prevail. And it's certainly no Corvette or Ferrari, but it is going to win the marathon. You know, if you got to travel cross, cross country over, you got to be a pioneer rather than a settler and go through uncharted uh, territory, that SUV is probably your best bet. And so we liken it to an all weather investment vehicle. I, I want to talk about, I want to talk about the specifics of the strategy a little bit, not at a high level. I heard you in another interview refer to your process as having an element of macro trend in it. So the, the different pieces of this all-weather portfolio, do you sort of strategically rebalance them? Do they get larger or smaller over time, or are your allocations pretty static? And then uh, if they are dynamic, what are the signals that you look at when you're when you're trying to decide to make a change? Yeah, I would say they're very dynamic uh, and contingent upon market conditions. So we've been up and running for four years now. And I can tell you that the portfolio today looks very different than it did uh, right after COVID. And right after COVID, it looks looked very different than it did right before COVID. So uh, a global macro, trend-oriented global macro program is essentially going to monitor all the different liquid markets around the globe, things like grains, soft commodities, energies, bonds, currencies, equity indexes. Uh, collect all that data and clean it and, and convert it into a total return stream and just be aware of what's happening. Are certain markets going up? Are certain markets going down? Are they doing so in a statistically significant manner? And take positions long in markets that are strong and doing well and take positions short in markets that are weak and doing poorly and then establish you know, stop losses or something to to expunge the pain when when you're wrong on a trade because you're going to be wrong on on trades over time. So it's it's a tactical rules-based systematic very disciplined approach at finding uh markets and trends around the globe that are hopefully uncorrelated with uh your equities and your bond position. So it does change over time. So I I think this raises an interesting question, you know, going back to the Corvette versus the the off-road vehicle it brings up an interesting question about giving investors what they want versus giving investors what they need, right? I think a lot of us have sort of in our minds, you know, a lot of us in the in the industry go, okay, well, this is what you need, right? You know, from your all-weather vantage point, this is what you need. From a value investment vantage point, it might look slightly different, but whatever. We've all got our own religions. We've all got our own schools of thought. And we have these ideas about what investors need, but what investors want is the Corvette when they're on the track and you know the four by four when it's raining. 
How do you balance the realities of trying to sell product, run a business, and make your clients happy with this sort of middle of the road, all weather approach? Maybe the best way to answer that is to just tell you my story, um, like how I got on this track. So two jobs back, you know, in the in the early and mid 2000s, uh, I ran a fund of funds uh, and it was um, in the hedge fund world, you know, SMA, so separately managed accounts and fund of funds. And I had clients that were high net worth investors here in, in Arizona. And it was very difficult to get them excited or happy about investing in alternatives, you know, macro type stuff. You know, they made their money in real estate and stocks and that's kind of really what they were comfortable with and, and that's the, the what they wanted to pursue. So I did a, an experiment and Daniel, I think this will this will interest you to some degree. I brought these guys in one at a time and sat them down and showed them data, but from different asset classes. I think there were five, maybe six asset classes. So things like gold, stocks, macro trend, corporate bonds, regular bonds, and real estate, something like that. But I anonymized it. So they didn't know which asset class was which. It was just asset class red, green, orange, blue, brown, and gold, whatever. And I asked them, or I told them, I said, let's build a portfolio. Pick your favorite asset class and we'll put 40% of your money in that. And then your second favorite asset class will put 20 in that. And then your third will put 10 in that, so on and so forth. And I also asked them to pick one asset class to eliminate forever. You're just going to delete it and we're never even going to consider investing into it. So they're looking at this data and down at the bottom, they could see the annualized return, annualized vol, the worst drawdown, and the average correlation with the other asset classes. And almost every single one of these people built this, the same portfolio. They'd pick their favorite, their second favorite, their third, their fourth, the fifth, and then they would eliminate the one that they liked the least. And then I would reveal to them the portfolio they built. And it was in almost all cases, the exact opposite of what they do in real life. And every case, the, the asset class that they chose to get rid of forever was the S&P 500 until it was revealed to them. So what does that tell you? When you build a portfolio objectively without the fear and the panic uh, and the envy and um, all that stuff, you build a really, and, and it looked great. You mix these asset classes together in those proportions. You got this beautiful absolute return, total return stream going back you know, 30, 40 uh, years. And they're like, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what I want until I showed them what was in it. And then they said, okay, but that's not even the most interesting part. The most interesting part is, did it change their behavior in real life? A little bit for a brief period of time. But if you check back two, three years later, they're right back to what they were doing before. No change, no permanent changes. And then for the people that did make some changes, they watched it like a hawk every step of the way and suffered prospect theory and, the, and regret and envy. And they're constantly watching the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. So I realized that even if you can force people to be objective and rational, as soon as they have to go back out in the real world and defend that to their peers, it falls apart, right? So it's not enough to expose uh, whatever you want to call this, the truth or just objective reality. Um, there's a reason that people do the opposite and I can't overcome that. So, you know, I bounced around for a while and tried some different things. I mean, I really tried selling what it is I think people need. And what people need the most at the margins is what they don't want. 
You know, they need effective diversification. And that means having something that can ballast the portfolio during bad times has a positive overall return, but it underperforms risk assets when they're soaring. But there's a reason that nobody wants that. Uh, and there's a reason very few people can hold on to that. So I went back to the drawing board and thought, well, how do I get these people to invest the way I do? You know, my own personal portfolio. And one of my coworkers pointed at my personal portfolio and he said, well, you're basically, if they only saw the results of your personal portfolio, it's basically this all weather absolute return program. I don't think anyone would have a problem with that. I'm like, yeah, but the individual ingredients are these things. And he said, well, just roll it all up into one fund, run it at the right risk level and roll it out to the world at a reasonable fee with reasonable taxes and see if they won't buy it. I thought, well, sure, why not? And then I talked to my peers in the industry. No one seems to be doing that except the absolute return hedge fund industry. So that was the experiment. You know, Standpoint's an experiment. We did that. That's my personal portfolio. Now I put all my money in the fund uh, and it is this optimal portfolio, optimal sharp ratio, optimal Sortino ratio, Calmar ratio portfolio over the last 50 years. It's just got enough macro trend, enough stocks and enough bond exposure uh, to have a nice balance. Um, and it is, I think, you know, that SUV example. So I don't know if I answered your question or if I just totally hijacked this thing. I went off on a rant here. So no, that that was actually uh, that was actually a really fascinating story, right? And consistent with with everything we know in behavioral finance, right? You know, I had I had lunch with Russ uh, last week, you know, and we were talking about how no one, you know, no no one gets fat because they can't read a nutrition label, right? Like we know we know what we should eat, we know what we shouldn't eat, but still we want what we want, and so even when we're presented with the facts, like. It just is so it it's so evanescent, like it just dissipates so quickly, right? And we go back to doing what the crowd wants to do and what we are sort of conditioned to do. I don't know to give credit for. I think it's Corey Hofstein. He has this thing called the weird portfolio, which is basically, you know, with valuations and trend being where they are at any given time, what's sort of the right mix of assets you would need to get sort of a traditional 60-40 return going forward. And you look at this thing at different points in time, and it is an absolute monstrosity, right? I mean, you look you look at it and you're just owning the weirdest stuff. And it would be so hard to sort of market this to someone that this like Frankenstein's monster of a portfolio that you've constructed is sensible and yet I think you've tried to walk the line of what do investors need versus what they want by taking all the Frankenstein bits and sort of wrapping them in a tax efficient, fairly priced wrapper uh, and, and, and hoping that <laughs> hoping that they don't ask too many questions about what's under the hood, maybe. Yeah. I mean, Corey Hofstein is one of the smartest people I've ever met and he really understands. Uh, I mean, I ping him from time to time and if I get stuck on something because he can figure it out. I'm doing something a little different. I'm trying to offer a product that people can consume that actually solves more problems than it creates for them. And that requires that we understand their utility function. Like what is a problem to them? And a problem to them is is certain kinds of tracking error. Um, and it's not, it's not that the financial advisors don't know right from wrong. You, I can explain the most complicated stuff to most of these financial advisors you know, in an hour. Um, how do, how then do they turn around and, and explain it to their 400 clients though? That's the hard part, right? So if you build a decent all-weather program that's scalable uh, and just doesn't punch on people's emotional buttons, 
then you're solving problems for advisors because you're not triggering the clients into fear and panic about being left behind, uh, about, you know, all the, it's just the tracking error and the envy that it creates. That That's the weakness. And we even have some of that weakness. You know, I mean, we're not up as, like the NASDAQ's up enormously this year. We're not, but it's close enough that people can, you know, it's, a, it's reasonably effective at keeping emotional people from feeling too much envy or too much panic so that they can stay invested. You can't help anyone if you can't keep them invested. You know, and it's like being a scuba diver. You you only get to run out of oxygen once. You know, it's over. So when you lose a client, you lose a client. So having products that don't stomp on the nerves and the emotions of clients is important. Hopefully, somebody can create products that are good compounding vehicles, reasonably tax efficient, and won't get left behind. Uh, that also don't stomp on the nerves of clients. How you don't do that is by cracking open a, a good product pulling out the most weird uncorrelated assets and making the clients stare at those individually on a line item by line item basis, because then the report card phenomenon comes up every single quarter and year. They want everything to be an A or a B. Um, and it's like, well, that's the opposite of diversification. Diversification means that you know, you're know you going to have some assets that are outperforming one year, but underperforming the next. And clients don't like how that looks and feels in real time. So I saw this, I saw this firsthand at my at my former employer, I'm not going to name, I'm not going to name names. So at my former employer, we had a, a, a very small allocation to like, I don't even know what to call it. It was like treasure hunters. Like these people were lo- literally looking for sunken treasure, like looking for, you know, Spanish gold coins on sunken treasures. And the way that it worked is, you know, we would allocate to them. They would take these investments, this money, they would use it to fund these trips. And then if they find, you know, the sunken Spanish galleon at the bottom of the, you know, Indian Ocean or whatever, and they bring it up and it's full of gold and treasure, then you get a great return on your investment. Well, they never did anything. And people were aware that this was in the portfolio. And I mean, this was an infinitesimally small piece of the portfolio, right? I mean, these were smart people running this money, they were not putting big chunks, you know, double digit chunks of money into these treasure hunters. But that's all anyone ever wanted to talk about was, you know, forget fixed income, forget, you know, small cap value or large cap growth. Like what's going on with the treasure hunters? And when that didn't work out, it sort of sullied the whole thing, right? It sort of tarnished the reputation of the whole thing, even though this thing was just a teeny tiny allocation. So it's just this, it's just this duality we have to keep in mind. What do they need? What do they want? And how do we authentically walk that line? And it feels like you're doing a good job of that. Yeah, it's the fly in the ointment, right? It's it's um the the curse of alternatives is that no one ever uses enough to make a difference, but any amount is enough to be a problem. Right. For the client, if they're looking at it on this the statement, you know, and in a year where the stock market's up twenty, unless your alt's up fifteen, the clients feel like they're they're getting left behind. So even if it's a one percent allocation, that's never enough to make a meaningful difference to the results, but it's always enough to create a problem psychologically. Well, that's a great segue. Let's let's talk about alts because you know, I when I was preparing for this for this conversation, one of the things that I thought was like, gee. I'm hearing less about alts than I used to, right? I'm hearing less about alts than I used to, certainly. But I wanted to test that empirically. 
And so I did a Google search, like, in a, you know, a Google trend search for alternative investments. And I found that searches for alternative investments uh, peaked in 2004, uh, began to fall, but then remained relatively elevated through much of the great financial crisis. But but since, you know, 2009, 2010, have fallen slowly and have sort of pl- plateaued in the last five or six years. You know, one of the things that I came across on your website, which is which is full of great content, is some some writing and some conversation around you being critical of alts, right? Talking about the promise of alts, how they've fallen short of that promise, and, and how you strive to be a little bit different. Could you talk about that? I would say we strive to be a lot different. <laughs> so um, the, the analogy, when I look at the alternative investment landscape, what I see is the is the fad diet landscape. You know, it's like most diets are not going to work because they don't focus on what matters, which is nutrition, like solid nutrition. You know, um, you know, insulin issues, uh, sleep, quality of life, and exercise. It's the same old formula. You know, there's there's no new formula. You know, the formula for getting healthy, losing weight, and feeling good is the same as it's ever been. Um, but the fad diet complex is anything but that. Any you know, easy. It happens fast. Lose ten pounds this week. You know, for your reunion or whatever. Um, most of the alternative investment landscape is not quite that bad, but along the same vein where they're packaging you know, uh, equity risk, credit risk, interest rate risk, they're packaging it a little bit differently so that it looks and feels a little bit different on the way up, but it's the same trapdoor risk on the way down. And that's why we, you see this phenomenon that we call correlation breakdown, where you own all these alts, you know, and then you find out that when COVID hits or the crash of 87 or 2002 or 2008, uh, they play catch up on the downside and go down 30, 40, 50, sometimes 60 or 70%. So, you know, those are alts in name only. You know, they they look, I guess they're alts, but they're they're not beneficial to the portfolio. They're not sourcing risk premia that are f- that are differentiated and different from the risks you're already taking in your traditional 60-40 style portfolio. So, like the the rest or the um the solution to losing weight and and being healthy really hasn't changed, you know, in thousands of years. Um, and the shortcuts generally don't work. Uh, or if they do work, they come with serious, you know, side effects and potential consequences. Um, modern portfolio theory is essentially correct and true, um, but what's required is that you have assets that are truly uncorrelated with your core assets, and you don't get that from venture capital and private equity and biotech and arbitrage. Those things are, to some degree, and in a lot of cases, a large degree, highly dependent upon. You know, market conditions being conducive to to risk assets. Um, so, but there are a few things out there that have truly been independent uh, from risk assets when they're going down. So, and my philosophy is: look, I I look at the 1970s. I look up going forward, and I say, look, that no one's really preparing to to thrive in an environment like that. There's room for for somebody who is. We're going to try to create that product. So I need assets that can stand up and deliver in hostile market conditions. And it's it's not hard to find them. You just need all the data going back 50 years and you write your queries correctly and it'll reveal to you. There's just a, a handful of things that historically have stood up and delivered when you needed it the most. And my job is to make sure that we do a good job of sourcing those risk premia uh, and that they're represented in the portfolio in a meaningful way. Uh, and that's that's pretty much it. 
Uh, and it's actually not that hard because it's really just macro trends, you know, global macro trend, uh, very, very short-term treasuries to a some degree gold. It used to be the MLPs were pretty uncorrelated, um, but I don't trust them as much as I used to or yeah, I don't. And that's about it. You know, there's some other tactical strategies that I don't, I'm not a big fan of that historically have kind of worked, but I think they, they're, they're, they're too fragile or brittle for what I'm trying to do. So really it just boils down to, um, old school trend following on futures markets. You know, the big ones, energies, currencies, bonds, soft commodities, grains, uh, and T-bills and, and market cap weighted equities like that triangle between those three actually assembles a pretty good all weather absolute return style program yeah i think we at least in this country tend to view innovation and creativity as such unmitigated goods that sometimes we can take that belief and apply it inappropriately in financial markets where a lot of times what you want to do is get the blocking and tackling right right like if you if you if you if you follow the rules that have that it's always been you know these sort of first principles of finance like you just talked about laid out very nicely there you're going to do fine right you're not going to win every year you're not going to be at the top of the mountain every year but you're going to be fine over the long term and i think people are always looking for a shortcut or a hack i mean this is very much the american mindset and i think that's that's almost one of the greatest sources of poor returns and fraud and disenfranchisement in in markets. That is very well said. <clears throat> I couldn't possibly agree more. I say it all the time that the new alpha, that the cutting edge breakthrough is getting the blocking and tackling right because not too many people are doing that anymore. Um, that's the secret to uh, weight loss and health is getting the blocking and tackling right. That's a secret to healthy relationships. That's a secret to uh, you know, uh, compounded returns and asset management is at least do a good job of the foundational blocking and tackling. That's where all the area, the room for improvement is. And you're right. I never, I've never heard anyone articulate it that way is this, this fetish or obsession with innovation and, and what they think is creativity. But I think it's very creative to figure out what the real root cause of the issue is and go fix that. Like, let's be creative, um, with the blocking and tackling, uh, because results matter. Yeah, well, and I mean, you've seen you've seen with financial innovations in the last ten years or so, financial innovations that will remain unnamed. Where it's like, if you're if you're critical of them, you're sort of positioned as a luddite or a sort of anti-progress and things like that. And I don't know, uh, sort of truth wins out in the long term, and I think the fundamentals win out in the long term uh, if people do what you're talking about there. So one of the things that I enjoyed learning about you, you're from Kansas originally. Yes. Okay, Kansas. So my uh, my team plays Kansas this weekend. We'll see how it goes. But uh, you you were uh, studying meteorology uh, originally in in school, and like a good Kansan would, right? Lots of yeah. lots of meteorology to be had in in Kansas, and you moved from meteorology to markets because you learned in part that you love studying complex, dynamic, data rich systems more than you maybe love the weather. Uh, in and of itself. And I heard you talk in one interview about how markets and how trend can kind of be a sort of canary in the coal mine for larger events. And, and specifically, you were talking about energy markets during COVID. 
And I'd be curious about this principle broadly and then specifically sort of what you saw during COVID in the energy markets. Yes. So that's a, it's a good point that I sometimes struggle to articulate to people. Um, there's two ways to talk about this. Uh, one, when you're tracking all the different risk transfer markets around the globe, you know, grains, bonds, currencies, you know, metals, all of them, energy, when there is a problem that manifests as a supply demand, demand imbalance in the, in the market, the primary markets, you can't help but notice. Right. And usually when, when, when you and your audience and investors and financial advisors are experiencing a bear market in equities or bonds, it didn't originate there. It's the result of some exogenous event that, you know, the, what broke the camel's back and it shows up elsewhere first, typically. So during COVID, it showed up in the energy markets. You know, they were the ones that were the heaviest, you know, there was an oversupply uh, and demand fell off a cliff. Um, but, and I remember watching this in real time, I had no idea COVID was coming. I had no idea we were headed for a 34%, you know, decline of the fastest 30% decline in stock market history, none whatsoever. And we had just launched our, our program and we were fully loaded risk on, you know, growth investing in January. And we got this absolute madness right out of the gate. Um, but in the middle of February, we started getting signals to short pretty much every energy market on the planet and signals to buy flight to quality assets like the Swiss franc and short-term treasuries. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, the markets do not like what they see on the horizon. Something bad is is brewing here. Um, and then when you know it happened, it happened fast and it was too fast for people to reposition equity portfolios. But a macro player um, who's trend oriented and reasonably nimble, you don't have to be very nimble. I mean, we had weeks and weeks to, to, to accumulate these short positions, was extremely profitable on those short positions. Because I, I don't know if you recall, but crude oil, I think, went from 65 a barrel all the way down to zero a barrel and then ultimately went negative. You know, some of the positions we were in went to negative 35 a barrel, which no one even thought possible, but it makes sense, you know, because the cost of storage went parabolic uh, and you actually had to pay people to take this toxic crude oil off your hands because there was no demand anymore. So on one hand, these uh, other markets can tell you that something bad's happening that 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 ultimately might you know bring the equity markets lower. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, but it's really the diversification I'm looking for is that we want our opportunity set to be as wide as possible. We want to be able to be short uh, these markets, if they're going down or long, if they're going up and knowing that to a large degree, they're uncorrelated with our equities and our bond positions. So we get that diversification benefit. So there's two benefits. One, it kind of tips you off that there might be something wrong. Uh, and two, you just get all this valuable diversification. Now, all of this begs the question, are you seeing anything interesting now? Are you seeing anything in the markets you watch now that's abnormal or unusual? Yes. Uh, <laughs> a lot, actually. Um, everything I'm seeing from the markets right now screams stagflation to me. That doesn't mean that we're guaranteed to get it, uh, but that is what the macro trends are saying. If you're not prepared for stagflation at this point, uh, then you never will be. Mm. You know, with uh, energy prices soaring, um, you know, bond markets selling off again, interest rates going. I mean, the markets are essentially 
if, if I just objectively look back at historical data and ignore the news, the media, people's personal feelings, everything, the markets essentially are suggesting that the cost of capital is going to go up a lot and that inflation is going to go up a lot. And uh, there's just going to be a lot of hardship. Now, I'm not seeing it in the equity markets in the futures world. You know, you look under the hood at the breadth, it's atrocious. Just a few stocks, you know, the AI and the NVIDIAs of the world are holding up the market index. I think I looked at the Vanguard growth index is up 33 year to date, whereas value is basically flat. Small caps are terrible. Breadth is terrible. Um, it, it doesn't look great, but I also, from experience, you know, I was paying attention back in the early 90s. The large caps can hold up for a long time. That market doesn't have to go down. You know, just because most stocks are going down doesn't mean that the S&P 500 and the MSCI world have to go down. Japan and the UK and continental Europe and the US, they could hold up. But the rest of the stuff that markets are telling me that, you know, hardship is on the horizon. Inflation is not defeated. And bonds are a very fragile and brittle asset class. Great breakdown. I'm glad I asked. It's it's fascinating. You know, I love one of the things that I love about studying markets is how much, first of all, of a of sort of a a harbinger can be for other things that are about to happen. You probably approached COVID, you know, with a different mindset than much of the world with with respect to what you had seen previously. And, and also just how much how connected it all is, right? Markets and money touch every part of our lives and whether it's economic or, or, or political or whatever, uh, watching these signals can give us sort of a foreshadowing of what, what may be to come. You know, I found a quote on your site that I'm going to be using, whether or not I attribute, uh, attribute it to you going forward, very much to be determined. I may just steal it and make it my own. No, it's uh, a mechanism that forces discipline is the most reliable way to succeed as an investor. And with, with all of this in mind, you you take a systematic approach, right? This is something I've talked about in all my books. Uh, to me, the research is very, very clear that a systematic approach for someone who is behaviorally informed is really the only way to do it. Uh, can you tell us why you chose to take a systematic approach and, and what sort of specifically that looks like for you? Why did I choose it? Well, I believe that it is has a much higher probability of working out in the future. Um, I am not a discretionary trader. I never have been. Um, I can be honest with myself and say, like, you know, if, if if I had to trade discretionarily over the past, I've been in the business twenty seven years now. I don't think I would have done that well because I'm a human too. I look at things and. Um, now, the moves happen before you get the press releases or you get the research. Um, you know, markets are discounting mechanisms and they're faster than the media um, and they're faster than the board of directors. Um, so I think a systematic approach does what well what humans do poorly. Uh, a systematic approach, it doesn't need um, justification for like it, going short energy right before COVID was not a popular position. I remember, and I'm pretty robotic. It even made me nervous. And I thought, wow, if <laughs> nobody wants to short crude oil at 65 a barrel, I had people that called me and said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You can't short crude oil at 65. How much lower can it possibly go? Well, the answer ended up being negative 35. But at the time, he, you know, he had a point. Uh, so politically uh, and socially, it is not comfortable to put these trades on. Uh, but these trades are the ones that make the, the difference. And if you go back in time, if you ask any global macro guy, 
um, to do an honest assessment of his or her track record going back, you know, 20 years. And if they roll up the returns into a five-year rolling return, um, they will have to admit that 80% of the returns come from 20% of the trades, or it's more like 90-10. And those very important trades were the hardest ones psychologically to put on, by far the hardest to put on and to hold. A systematic investing process simply does not care. It is not phased at all by the pushback and the political and social pressure that you get from your peers in the industry. And I think that's why they thrive. And I think you're right. I mean, at least in my industry, I would say 80 plus percent of the success is the systematic guys. You know, I, there's an example from Joel Greenblatt, the the great investor. You know, he has his little magic formula that looks at, what is it, return on invested capital and earnings yield and and tries to pick cheap, high quality stocks. And he offers that for free, right? He has a website where he'll tee that up and you can you can go get it. You can get those names for free or you can invest in his mutual fund that is fairly expensive and does, you know, effectively the same thing. And he monitored this monitored this approach over a 3-year period and he compared three things. He compared his uh, you know, systematic, right? His surely systematic approach he compared it to the S&P, and then he compared it to people on his site who were picking from his watch list, right? So picking from his universe of stocks, but then discretionarily, uh, you know, taking some out, right? Because you know, back to your back to your oil trade, they would look at oil and go, "Ah, oil is sixty-five bucks a barrel. Like that's already crazy low. This is a you know, this is a false flag. I'm going to ignore it." And so people, uh, his system dramatically outperformed the S&P, like absolutely whipped it, right? But those people who were selecting from what was proven to be a winning formula and then discretionarily taking things out of the mix, they underperformed the S&P, fishing in what is effectively a stocked pond, right? I mean, fishing, fishing from a very, very good pond they still managed to underperform the S&P. So I think, you know, there's so many reasons. I think, you know, there's all the behavioral reasons. It's cheaper, right? Like, I mean, it's cheaper to build a model and follow it than to pay an army of CFAs to, you know, sort of fly all over the world and shake hands and kiss babies with with every company you're looking at. Um, you know, that gets passed on to investors. But it's also just nice to be able to blame the model, right? Like, hey, yeah. To, to throw your hands up and say, yeah, I I know this sounds crazy, but you know, blame the model. It's nice to have something to someone to pin the blame on, so to speak. Well, the, you you brought up a good phrase though, fishing in a stacked pond. Is that what you said? Stacked pond? I think stocked, but yeah. Stocked. Yeah, okay. Um yeah, so the way that goes wrong for people is when it's a small number of big winners. Mm. Um Kind of like uh, you know, the capitalism distribution in the stock market, where you know, eighty percent of the stock market's returns come from twenty percent of the stocks over the long term. I think it's even more skewed than that. Um, but it's a small number of stocks that drive most of the returns over the long term. Uh, when you have a, a stocked pond, um, but you know, eight out or seven out of ten fish are, are you know are dead, but the other three are amazing, yeah. uh, and you allow people to pick and choose. And they just get it wrong. Uh, and yeah. for some reason, we get it wrong 
in financial markets. And I have a theory as to why uh, that's different than fishing. Um, comfort seeking behavior comes at a cost, mm-hmm. you know? So if, if the people are cherry picking certain stocks, it's probably the ones that have the most positive press. Yeah. You know, they're showing up on his list, but also other people are writing about them. So when there's positive press on a stock, it means the discounting mechanisms already got its teeth into that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably already got the benefit of the capital inflow and that's why people are writing stories about it. So a systematic process essentially says, I don't care. I'm not looking at any of that stuff. I'm going to do them all. And then the ones that work out, I'm going to hold strong. And the ones that don't, I'm going to cut my losses before they get too big and just keep repeating this process over time mechanistically and without fear or greed or envy or passion. Uh, and that works, I think. Yeah. You you really do get paid for pain, right? And uh, a system doesn't know, that doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel that pain. Correct. Um, I, let, let's keep on this this topic of pain right now, right? So I, I heard you say in one interview, and I, I really like this. I think this was probably my my favorite thing I heard you say in any of my preparation here. You were talking about yourself and just sort of your self-knowledge, and you said, look, I'm kind of pessimistic and conservative by nature, right? I would say the same thing about myself. So the the following question is about to be entirely self-serving. Knowing this about yourself, knowing that you're kind of prone to pessimism, knowing that you lean conservative, what systems and processes do you put in place to navigate a market that goes up, you know, three years for every year it goes down? And, you know, the world only ends once and all that. I I, I find myself sort of naturally orienting to these more pessimistic voices. And I've had to learn to combat that. What do you do to overcome this sort of fundamental pessimism that's part of your nature? Yeah, a couple things. Um, one, try to use it for good. Um, you know, uh, my I am very skeptical, very pessimistic. Well, not very pessimistic, but I definitely am very skeptical and it tends towards pessimism. Uh, I try to use it for good. So I focus those energies on the risk management component and stress testing my own models and assumptions um, and try to leave it there but you can't really uh, completely leave it there. So I changed the default. So one of the reasons that we have a permanent long global equities uh, sleeve in, in our program is to make sure that um, you know, we've got that beta in there. Um, and it took some convincing. Um, I had to convince myself because nobody, I mean, I personally don't trust. I've seen stock markets go to zero, not in my lifetime, but there are, you know, historically stock markets that have gone to zero. I think Argentina, Russia, you know, there was a period of time where the Chinese market went to zero. Will the U.S. ever do that? Probably not, you know, at least certainly not in my lifetime. But nevertheless, you know, I, I can see a period of time where the stock market is dead money with lots of drawdowns that drags on for 20 years. But I'm not terrified of it because it's just a piece of our portfolio. And then in the macro program, we've got stock indexes, which can you can end up going short and they can offset that to a large degree and be, be a functional hedge. So, but that's my, that's the, I characterize that as changing the default. So we have this permanent long global equities position in the fund rather than starting with a cash position like a lot of our peers in the industry. And I just accept that that is actually the right thing to do based upon all the historical and empirical data uh, and the product we're trying to offer to other people. And I'm comfortable with it. 
Um, and I focus my pessimism and skepticism on the risk management component. And it's a nice harmonious relationship. But if it was just me going like 20 years ago, I would have said, no, I'm never going to trust, you know, the stock market. You know, everything is going to be tactical and I'll take what I get. But I've evolved. Yeah, this is uh, shrinks call this sublimation. Right. So taking something about yourself that's sort of negative or, you know, not how you would exactly like it to be and channeling it and making it work for a good. I think there's lots of lots of ways to make that work. I think one of the secrets to my success is sort of low level anxiety, right? Just kind of kind of always being a little wound up and like you can let that debilitate you or you can try and channel that and try and make it work for you. And you know, you've done the same thing with a natural conservatism and a natural pessimism. Hey, I'm going to have the best risk management system around. I'm going to take this this predisposition about mine and make it work, but also understand where it could be an impediment and and make sure I it doesn't it doesn't get me. So, Eric, the the, the last question I have from you, I saw on your site you, there was a, a think piece where you were citing research from BlackRock saying that a 60/40 portfolio is unlikely to do well over the next decade. And this is a message I think we've been hearing a lot. I went to look for the original sort of 60-40 is dead article to try and backtest it to that point. There were so many 60-40 is dead articles that I couldn't even really untangle the, the true genesis of the whole thing. And you and BlackRock both advocate about a 20% allocation to alternatives uh, given the kind of the current market that we're in. And so I wanted to look at this a couple of ways, right? So I, I backtested a simple 60-40 allocation from the time the BlackRock article was written until today. Okay. So if you had put 10, it's been two or three years. If if you would put $10,000 in when that BlackRock article was written, you would have today $9,990, right? So you would have lost 10 bucks. So point, point to Eric and BlackRock, right? Over, over that time period, uh, that's uh, a 60-40 has indeed been been pretty disappointing. But I back tested it a few more years, about a decade or so, to to about the point where sort of anecdotally I started hearing people saying that the 60-40 was dead. And it's actually done quite, you know, it's it's been average, right? It's done 6.3% over that time, which sort of ironically puts it at the 63rd percentile uh, for performance relative to the 60-40 over time. So my question here is, we've all seen these big pronouncements, right? You know, the, the famous death of equities articles and things like this, where, where something that was simple and sort of fundamental was poo-pooed, and then it ended up being okay. I, I guess my question is, what makes you question something with such a long and successful track record now? And, and what would it take for you to change your mind? I don't think that there's anything that could change my mind because my my position on this is that a 60-40 portfolio is good, but incomplete. Mm. You know, it's it's just capital formation markets, stocks and bonds. It's completely ignoring all the risk transfer markets, all the futures and the forwards and energies, metals, grains, you know, all the soft commodities and whatnot unnecessarily. And I would point out that a 60-40 portfolio historically has not been bulletproof. I mean, most people have been paying attention uh, during a, a disinflationary period. So from 1982 to 2020, a 60-40 portfolio had every advantage. Started off with high rates, 
You had disinflation and declining rates and expanding multiples. I mean, literally everything that could go right did go right for a stock and bond portfolio during that period of time. And bonds were negatively correlated with stocks. So you got a free perfect hedge in there too. So something that compounded at 7 8% a year and was a great hedge against what was on the other side of your portfolio compounding at 9 to 11 or 12% a year. So what I'm saying is that that's as good as I could model it out. If I went back in time and did a Monte Carlo simulation of all the future possible permutations, that would be in the 90th percentile. That's what you got, right? Yeah. So, but if we look at other periods of time, say from 1940 to 1980, bonds had a total return that was negative in real terms. They lost money for 40 years, 40 years. And there was nobody in 1982 saying, you know, you're a moron if you don't own bonds. I mean, nobody. And and at the end of the 70s, no one wanted to own equities. So I just view the 60-40 portfolio as um, kind of a, a lumbering attempt at diversification that has a rear view mirror looking back 20, 30 years that is rosy, you know, that that's that's the top top decile performance of what you should expect from from that portfolio. And I feel like you give up nothing by bringing in other asset classes that add a tremendous amount of value because an all weather portfolio is going to have stocks, it's going to have bonds, and then it's going to have these kind of uh, trend based positions and all the risk transfer markets and can hold up a lot better in a period like the 1970s, which is really from 68 to 82. It was 14 years of pain for people that were passive stock and bond investors. So I just look at it and say they're taking risk that's uncompensated. I don't know about the timing. I mean, I did make a video in the summer of 2020, essentially showing that I just saw no way that you could make money from bonds in the in the because I mean the yields were zero to, to negative inflation break even rates were 1.6%. It's just like it's a really bad bet. It doesn't mean you can't make money, but it's going to have to, it's going to require rates going to negative territory and um, just a bad bet. So I agree with, with BlackRock that a 6440 portfolio is not a great bet simply because the comparisons are tough and it, you know, at a Goldilocks period and people's expectations are, are way too high. Um, but I can't tell you what 6040 is going to do going forward. I just feel like it's incomplete and it's not the greatest bet on the planet. You know, I love, I love Morgan Housel's idea. I'm going to misquote it somewhat, but it's but it's effectively like, look, you know, your lifetime uh, accounts for, you know, 0.001% of history or whatever the number is, but it accounts for 99.9% of how you think about history. And so if you look at the average financial advisor, I mean, the average financial advisor is the uh, whatever 60 year old white man, right? So a, a 60 year old man, a 60 year old advisor who's lived through a period of of incredible performance for bonds, right? And a, a 60-40 has been a wonderful thing to do for for a long, long time. Uh, but I think, you know, we have to become students of history and we have to become market historians and know that, you know, what what got us here may not get us there and to to think more expansively about what the future might look like if conditions change. And and it seems like in some ways they have. Yeah, I would agree with that. That um, like, look, we, we talked about this a little bit 15, 20 minutes ago. Like, what what are the macro trends telling me, and the de the demographic trends and whatnot? And and I, I hesitate to say these things out loud because they tend to get you in trouble, even if you're proven correct, you know, two years later. But I won't be the least bit surprised if the cost of capital doubles again from where we're at right now. 
Uh, that will not surprise me at all. Um, I won't be surprised if the equity markets hold up reasonably well. That will not surprise me. But I that that is not going to be a good situation for bonds. Um, it's not going to be. And then I just look at the positioning too. Who's buying the bonds? Oh, it's the pension funds. Who's shorting the bonds? It's all the hedge funds. I'm like, well, who wins that battle most of the time? Um, pension funds have a long you know duration, long longer time frame. Hedge fund guys, uh, not not so much. So another sometimes the hedge fund guys get it wrong. Um, and they'll stop out and move on. But just looking at it and I just, I I don't trade that way. Everything's systematic. It's all rules-based. I've never not stopped out. I've never skipped a trade. You know, we're very disciplined about sticking to the system. Um, so we're going to do whatever the markets, you know, tell us that we need to do in order to source those risk premium we're looking for in the risk transfer markets. But right now, things look fragile and it looks like we we are in a new paradigm. I don't think anyone disputes that, that the the old rules from 82 to the year 2019 are not a good roadmap for figuring out where we're going in the future. It's definitely, we turned a corner and there's been a paradigm shift and there's no script for what we're looking at going forward. And that's why I like having a rules-based, unemotional, systematic approach to handling that. Eric, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure. You're someone who's really thoughtful about the behavioral side of investing, so that's made this uh, a blast for me. If people want to learn more about your work, if they want to learn more about Standpoint, where would you direct them? Yeah, super easy. Just go to standpointfunds.com, scroll down just a little bit, and uh, type in your email address into our monthly update, and you'll you'll know more than you ever wanted to about us. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Eric. Daniel, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.